This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Total Package Girl, Discover the Ultimate You for Life. And this book is quickly climbing the Amazon charts and soon will be a number one bestseller, I believe. Joining me from her offices in Ohio is author Christy K. Hoffman. Thank you, Christy, for joining me today. Good morning. Good to be here. Good to talk with you. I've looked over your book and find it fascinating. There uh, certainly is a, a lot of uh, lot of material in your book, almost 300 pages. There must have been something that uh, struck your interest in this area, and uh, is there something in your early life that uh, caused you to want to write this book, or what was your motivation behind it? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I have been mentoring and working with young girls, uh, 11 to 17, for a couple of decades now. I have watched the evolution of issues that impact and face our girls today. And it's everything from mean girls to cyberbullying to issues of cutting and eating disorders and Mm. identity issues. All of those things, as I go out and speak to girls across the country and different groups, I recognize that this is getting worse, not better for our teen girls and our preteen girls. I have spent about the last four years researching Total Package Girl and developing success tools. I actually call them secret weapons within the book so that girls can stay strong and start to navigate some of these issues. Fabulous. Your your personal motivation, as, as well as observing what's happening in the culture, is there anything else that got you on this track or got you focused on this journey? I think in my younger years, I saw bullying, and at that time, we didn't really label it as such. We kind mm. of dealt with it and watched kids kind of move away from schools or be picked on incessantly. And that's something that motivated me highly as I started writing this book and researching it is those issues are here today, but compounded by social media, by, you know, the Snapchat, being left out of the Snapchat stories and Instagram. Are you liked? Are you not liked? Are you retweeted? Are you not retweeted? Uh, That is that new sort of, I call it a cyber popularity world. Mm -hmm. And if you're not a part of that, you really, really see these girls kind of thinking through, do I want to commit suicide? Do I want to move away? Do I want to withdraw? Do I want to turn to drugs? So I've been talking with girls, as I said, across the country and hearing their stories. And when I tie my background and my youth and my teenage years and all the way through to right now, I can truly identify with some of these girls. And I want so badly for each girl to have a tool and a book like this on her nightstand that she can say, I can go to this book. I can feel like I am never alone. You have, uh, again, almost 300 pages. Describe for my listeners a little of the style of your book, because it's not just a lecture series. It's uh, more than that. It's motivational. It has other elements. Yes. Okay, so three years into writing this book, I looked at the book and I thought, hmm, this is flat. It doesn't have a lot of interaction, and it needs to be more vibrant, if you will. So I copied my manuscript. I handed it to many, many girls with a red pen, and I said, go at it, have at it. What would make this much more interesting for you, more fun? 
So after doing that, we added a bunch of quizzes and get-to-know-me-better kinds of activities. Super fun. I added inspirational quotes. I added hashtags. Uh, We all worked together and kind of had great input from the girls and uh, teens, and it has just, it changed it. So then that was three years in. Then it took me about another year to add the quizzes and the hashtags and the quotes and such, and we have these great tools for success, like bully action plans and being positive and how to learn how to deal with difficult people and you know, shutting out negativity and all those fun things that uh, really I think the activities help the girls to work through some of these difficult issues. And uh, our feedback then, once the book got published, was, wow, this is a really fun book, but it's also super informative, and it really helps me uh, understand that somebody is with me on this, somebody gets it, and that I'm never alone. It's fabulous. You have uh, broken it down into four distinct parts. Uh, the first part is Meet the Unstoppable Total Package Girl. Mm-hmm. Pack, uh, part two, Five Secret Weapons of the Total Package Girl. Package, or package, actually. Part three, Absolute Reality. Reality is something that uh, teenagers like to escape from and some adults. Uh, part four, Be the Total Package Girl for Life. Now, this the elements of your of your book and of your philosophy and of your teaching really are gearing someone to go beyond their teen years and surviving those, but also use it later in life. Would that be a, uh, the right observation? It sure would be. In fact, part four that you're talking about is the master plan. Yes. So if you take the term literally, total package girl, the total package is her body, her brain, and her spirit. And so many times we emphasize for girls and women simply the physical. Uh, you see the images in the media, on magazines, and in social media, everywhere. And so this takes it beyond that, helps each girl develop her own strategies for success and her own master plan for her body, her brain, and her spirit. And so by the time she finishes reading the book, she has her own kind of uh, GPS that she's following in her own path, her own master plan to be a total package girl. And I agree completely with what you said. This becomes a strategy for life. You take these tools. If girls can learn these tools at this young age, my goodness, they will be so much more successful in their lives because it's basically instilling confidence early uh, in their teen years, and they can then proceed to navigate the workforce and you know, relationships as they go forward, friendships. It really gives them some great secret weapons to navigate some of those things for life. And your book has a, sort of a question and answer or uh, maybe an observational element to it where the reader can take an idea or concept and try to apply it right there on the spot uh, into areas that they might be dealing with. This is something that could be an extension of a diary, perhaps, or some other lifestyle uh, growth pattern that they might develop. Mm -hmm, That's true. Uh, And it could take something as specific as bullying or anti-bullying, and there's an action plan for that. Or it might be something like, who are my true blue friends? We use the term true blue often because in life we want to make sure that we're surrounded by positive people, uh, solid friendships, and sometimes you know it's it's tough to find who's not going to throw us under the bus. Uh, Let's find one friend, and that friend might be a grandparent, it might be a neighbor, it might be a parent or a sibling, but whoever that person is, we're having we have sections in the book that allow girls to kind of journal and write down these are my true blues this is who i turn to this is the action step i'm going to take should i be bullied this is how i help a friend of mine if they're in the situation and this is how i deal with peer pressure moments and what i'm never going to let happen and there's even a part as you mentioned where they can develop their own little mantra 
So if they're walking down the beach and they're feeling very insecure about their body image because they have a bathing suit on and somebody made fun of them for being, you know, you know, called them a name or something, uh, they have a little mantra. And we say, here, write your mantra in this section of the book. And always remember that and go back to that so that you can rock your body image and not feel insecure or anything less than confident in who you are. You've mentioned cutting in your opening statements that there uh, are some elements of that in our society among girls. Where do you think that began and or how long ago did that begin and what do you think is motivating it? Well, boy, that's a real personal issue, and oftentimes I'll say I leave that, you know, on an individual level to the counselor or someone who's working with that girl. But uh, I can say some of those issues, such as cutting or eating disorders, they stem from things that could tie to perfection issues. I'm not perfect, uh, so therefore I'm not good enough. So it kind of goes back, if you back that up a little further, it ties to self-esteem, self-worth, negative comments that are repeatedly stated to a person uh, can really lead to feeling inadequate. So this is why Total Package Girl is such a relevant and critical book for girls, is that they can begin to feel like, yes, I am relevant just as I am. I am perfect just as I am. I call it imperfectly perfect. We all are. And I am good enough just as I am. So that girls start to feel like, okay, I don't need to turn to these other things, whether it's, you know, thinking about doing drugs or or, um, something tied to cutting or eating disorders, but to say, you know what, I look darn good just as I am. Mm. I've talked to some girls who will say, I don't even want to look in the mirror because I feel so ugly. And I'll say, well, you know, gosh, I, I don't see that at all. And they'll say, well, it's because people have repeatedly told me that since I was you know, since I can remember. So Total Package Girl is really, really hope, you know, we're hoping to get kind of on the front end of some of these issues so that uh, drugs, alcohol, teen suicides, all of those things are prevented in the long term or the shorter term, actually, in some cases. What's the youngest age that would uh, be able to absorb the contents of your book, do you think? Well, boy, you know, I would say sometime uh, 10, 10 years of age uh, is the youngest, I would say, for Total Package Girl. Uh, 11 to 17 is kind of the sweet spot in terms of girls really dealing with and navigating some of these issues. We do learn, and some of the Girl Scouts of the USA research would also tell you that girls do tend to lose some of their, their positive comments about body and some of their positive feelings about their body by the age of 10. Wow. I mean, there are girls who are going on diets at the age of 10 because they don't feel they look, quote unquote, good enough. And so I think the age of 10 on is a great age for girls to read Total Package Girl. And frankly, I've had moms read it with their daughters. Again, this is not a a parenting book. This is a book directly for girls to read. But I have also said to moms, dads, and grandparents, if you read this along with your daughter or your grandchild, uh, what a great opportunity for you to understand some of the issues that they're navigating and to open up the dialogue with them on what they're feeling, what they're facing, and some of those things that are really front and center in their lives that you might not have known about had you not had Total Package Girl. I think you brought up a good point. Uh, Parents and grandparents possibly would be a a, a good source for reading a book of this nature. Sometimes the self-image thing is systemic in a family, and perhaps the mom or grandparent or someone else in the family has carried forward that negative thought process. That could very well be the case. Sometimes I do find in talking with the thousands of girls I speak with on a rate, on an annual basis, we, you know, I'm talking across the country. And yes, sometimes the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Mm. Uh, so there is, there is that to be sure. 
Uh, but I do feel like an awareness, if you can get a book like this in a girl's hands to at least open her eyes to some of the strategies and the success tools that she can use, it's something, something very simple perhaps on if you're, if you're being picked on or you're being bullied, just having what I call confident eyes so that you're not revealing anything that looks like you're weaker than you are or, or perhaps uh, you know, uh, coming across to someone as very confident is all it takes sometimes. So, yes, I agree with that. Is there anything about preparing this book and the contents that was really a difficult challenge for you? I know that you mentioned that you, you did give it to some other readers to get their input. Was there anything else that perhaps uh, people will discover as they read your book? Uh, something, let's see here, something that what was difficult yet uh, eye-opening for me is hearing the stories. I know on our website, uh, the Total Package Girl website, we do have testimonials through our YouTube channel of some of the, the very difficult stories that I heard from girls along the way. And sometimes it's just very tough to hear mm. what the struggles are that they're going through. And it just, your heart breaks when you hear the hurt and the pain. But... On the bright side of that, I really feel that if they can read Total Package Girl, they know they are not alone. They can get through that. This is a moment, hopefully in time, that will pass, that they will be stronger and they will be able to kind of build on that and not feel uh, that they can kind of um, circumvent issues that may be coming their way in the future. That is what I hope for Total Package Girl. It is really tough, though, I will tell you, to hear the difficulties our 21st century girls face today. Yes. It's quite daunting when you see some of the hashtags that are used. Hashtag GKY, go kill yourself. Mm. That's, a common, that's a common hashtag now. Ouch. Can you imagine receiving that? Can you imagine mm. the, some of the, the, the negative pictures and posts and verbiage that's going on with our girls and receiving that on your own? We really have to teach our girls to be strong and powerful from within. That's why we have Total Package Girl. Uh, Christy, I, I have enjoyed uh, looking over this book. There must be maybe a sequel in the works. What are your plans for the future? There is a sequel. It is called Total Package Professional, which will take girls from that next, or from the Total Package Girl years of 11 to 17 or 10 to 17 into kind of that young professional chapter of their lives, navigating college and then getting into the workforce. Additionally, I am working on a workbook for guys oh, they in need help. teenage year <laughs> called The Total Guy. Wonderful. Well, those are uh, some exciting plans for the future. Hope to visit with you when those are completed. Thank you. Very difficult subject, but you've done a fabulous job in uh, presenting the ways that teens and preteen girls can gain personal self-confidence and improve their attitude about their life and their self-image. Title again is Total Package Girl, subtitled Discover the Ultimate You for Life. My guest has been award-winning television producer and past TV media personality with PBS, Christy K. Hoffman. Christy, my listeners need to get a copy of this. How do they do so? They can get one on Amazon.com, Total Package Girl. They can go to BarnesandNoble.com. They can go to our website, Total Package Girl, and click over and get it that way as well. They can plug in and find out more about your work in this area. Thank you again for sharing your story. Again, your website is? My website is TotalPackageGirl.com, and I hope we can spread the word and every person listening can grab a copy and, and help our 
preteen and teen girls be strong. Uh, thank you for sharing your story and sharing this important topic with us today. Again, the title is Total Package Girl. Discover the ultimate you for life. Christy K. Hoffman has been my guest. Thank you, Christy, for joining me today. Thank you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled A Jumble of Thoughts. And joining me from Florida, where he happens to be at the moment, <laughs> is author James Sitton. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you for having me today. How are you? Well, doing fine. And looking over the review of your book, or at least the outline of uh, some of the opinions about your book, it is definitely a jumble of thoughts. It's not just one particular topic that you deal with here. And uh, you uh, are unique from this perspective. You have a, a diverse background, and yet authorship seemed to be in your future. Did you? Are you a, a person that collects stories and then assemble them? How did this book get written? Well, um, as... One does in the course of a career of, of like mine, I had gotten injured and I had back-to-back knee surgeries, which laid me up for about a period of, of four months mm. and sitting around and doing nothing is not something I really like to do. And I have a lot of opinions on things and I started jotting them down. And as I continued to write them down, they these essays started coming out. That's what I called them, essays. Right. And before I knew it, I had a collection of these essays. And they were topics ranging from everything, everything that maybe uh, something that piqued my interest on television or something my wife had brought to my attention or from my three children or, or a friend or something in the newspaper. And so I just started writing my opinions on certain things. And then um, some stories that I had, from my career over the years, and that's how it started. You have, uh, it says, that your essays include uh, things like foreign policy, which seems like a deep and mysterious subject, uh, even to the uh, broad scope or broad brush of lighting a grill. Now, that certainly is an unusual topic to choose for uh, uh, an essay. How did that come about? Well, that essay is actually dedicated to one of to my favorite uncle um he's a uh, of mine who told me and showed me instructed me one of the uh, what i thought was the neatest ways to light a grill and the essay is dedicated to him 
um, lighting the grill is, of course, talked about in the essay. And uh, my favorite uncle, uh, uh, my uncle Mark, um, and there's some humor about the the way I refer to him in the essay itself. But that that's how that came about. And and if people want to know about how to light a grill in this manner, I will tell you that it does involve a blowtorch. <laughs> uh, completely legal by the way but it is it is it is a neat way to light a grill and there's a neat story in the essay uh, as well 212 pages you you have uh, you obviously have a different perspective on life you must be what would be considered or were you considered as a child adhd because uh, these stories are very diverse well, I don't. Well, when I grew up, and, and perhaps I'm dating myself here, there was no such thing as ADHD. They right. just said, "Oh, well, he's particular in a certain area." Yeah. <laughs> or, or this one is uh, is particular and likes things neat. You know, there was no such thing as OCD or ADHD at that time. Right. It was more, oh, uh, James would rather go outside and play cowboys and Indians, which was an actual game. I know that's maybe not the way you would call it now. Rather than do math, mm-hmm. I mean that. I mean, let's just call it what it is. I, I mean, I don't know of any child who would rather sit and do math. Well, I take that back. My little brother would. He's got a PhD in nanotechnology, oh, so boy. perhaps he was the child who would like to stay in your math. Yeah, he he really ruined it for the rest of his siblings um, <laughs> by getting that PhD. I'm the oldest. He's the youngest, and he got his PhD. But but the, the topics are all over the place and it's so uh, you know people can jump around they don't have to read the book straight through you know they can just pick it up and turn to something and and they can pick up on on something and also there's a pretty extensive appendix in the book which makes up uh, a lot of the pages so if people want to go more in depth they can do that just beyond the 5 minute read and also I did work for the government for 23 years. I think there's a lot of things that can be improved in such a great organism. Um, so I put the uh, I put the name and number of every senator and congressman, <laughs> their direct phone number in the back of the book, in case you want to call your representative. You were a little bit of an instigator then, it sounds like, as a child and maybe as an adult. I don't know. <laughs> well, I had a very successful career, let's put it that way. Mm. Uh, I... Uh, uh, so I was very good at my job, and and uh, you, you a job met, that I really enjoyed. You, throughout, yeah, I started very young, and, and, and it was terrific. And you managed to rein in your uh, eccentricities, if they were called that by anyone else. You even mentioned uh, Frank Sinatra in your book. Why was he included, and what was the story, or generally, what was the, the tale that you shared? Okay, well, beyond just uh, the music, obviously, and most people don't realize that he created the album concept. Again, I'm dating myself, but hmm. a collection of movies, maybe, to, uh, I'm sorry, a collection of songs to follow a, a theme. Um, but there was something about, you know, and I wasn't alive during this period of time, but Frank Sinatra uh, from about 1955 to peaking at 1957 to about 1962, 63, right when he started the Reprise record label, where he and his friends seemed to be the coolest guys in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, they the, with everything else that was going on in the world and everything that I've read, these these guys seem to, you know, they dressed nice, they had fun, they they maybe weren't the nicest people uh, behind closed doors, but but human beings, but they seem to be having a lot of fun and they seem to do it with a with a little bit of style and something that I think that that we've lost 
today. For instance, we don't men don't go in for straight razor shaves anymore because it's too expensive. You know, why mm-hmm. did we lose that? Because everybody's in a hurry. You know, all of these things that we've seemed to have lost, and that's why I had that little thing on Frank Sinatra. It, that that icon to me would symbolize what we what what maybe men or maybe a society uh, kind of have lost along the way. I mean, people will go to the grocery store now to get a gallon of milk and it looks like they're, they're in their pajamas because they are in their pajamas and people didn't (laughs) used to do that. People would, you know, I mean, unless it was an emergency, people Mm -hmm. used to actually present themselves. And I'm not talking about a midnight milk run for your baby who's screaming and I have three children. I'm talking in the middle of the day. True. True. Uh, You'll see people that like that. So I think we've lost something by not, presenting ourselves in a, in a, in a certain way and, and treating each other in a certain way. So that's, now that's not all in the essay, but that's why I chose that topic. And I will, I, I was going to say I was going to date myself, but I, I'm not allowed to do that. Um, there also <laughs> are, are some comments on, on etiquette, which I personally, I have, I, I'm old enough to have grandchildren and, and I'm constantly saying, well, would you consider doing that? Or what about that? Or how about, you know, they, they have certain cultural trends that have, uh, that just cause me to itch all over. How did you approach the etiquette uh, topic? Well, the, some of the etiquette issues made my, made my work a lot easier. For instance, let me, let me give you one example. One example is there used to be a thing called discretion on the streets. When you were walking in public down a sidewalk, you would lower your voices when you were talking to each other mm-hmm. or maybe not talk at all. Nowadays, people will walk down the sidewalk blurting out their deepest, darkest secrets into their cell phone or into their Bluetooth for the whole world to hear. Now, as a special agent, if I was conducting an investigation, this made my job a whole lot easier, especially if the target was the one on the cell phone. Mm. But something like that, that, something like that, something as simple as that, you know, that, that is a, that is a, that was etiquette that you would just have, you know, outside. And that's not taught. Um, uh, for instance, I teach my children, if you're in a restaurant and you drop your, you drop a piece of silverware, you don't bend over to pick it up. You know, they'll bring you a new one because the floor is dirty and what have you. And I have a, I have a nephew and he didn't know that. Now it was no fault of his own that, that he didn't know that, but uh, how is that possible? I mean, what if, uh, how many other people didn't know that? So, so I kind of addressed that issue and, and some of these rules, they're not necessarily rules, but they're things that, that make your life easier and they also protect yourself. I mean, if you want to go into Facebook or what have you, they should be updated for the cyber world, but etiquette is still etiquette. And I think it still has a place in our society. And that kind of goes right back to the Frank Sinatra thing, doesn't it? It does. It does. It's, it's mostly personal courtesy, I guess, uh, in treating other people the way you'd like to be treated, which is an old adage that goes back centuries uh treat people the way you want to be treated and that is one of the foundations of etiquette that seems to be missing in our society i i agree i mean anything from standing in line at the bank which everybody has to do and i'll just use the bank as the easy example and not not do not do the not do the dmv or something like that but the bank i mean Mm -hmm. it takes time to to stand in line at the bank but the tellers are working as fast as they can and sometimes it's not their fault and people have business transactions to do that is just important to them that that your transactions is as important to you and there's nothing you can do about the weight so you might as well be nice to people 
And I mean, be nice to employees, be nice to the people in line, not huff and puff or, or carry on. I mean, if you're going to make, and if you're not much of, of a rush, then make, then come back to the bank a different time. There's something like that. When you see people that are miserable, you kind of want to say, Hey, or I kind of want to say, Hey, everybody could be miserable, but, or we could all just say, well, standing in the bank and the line in the bank isn't the most fun thing to do, but we're all here. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, so we should at least be courteous to one yeah, another. Get, get used to it. Is basically it. Now, in your six, uh, 212 pages, how many stories uh, did you write or approximately? And do, would you consider this a book of entertainment or instruction? What would be the best way to describe it? Well, it's definitely, well, it's entertaining if you like to hear someone else's opinion. And it's definitely not instruction. In, in, the, uh, in the preface of the book, I write that uh, aside from my hope that it's a financial pleasure to help my children go to school, and, uh, but I hope it's to make people think. And the fact that it's in print doesn't, doesn't make it right or wrong. It just happens to be my opinion. And in my and continuing with my opinion, the ability to articulate a point of view and have it challenged without getting upset, and perhaps even change your mind without changing your moral character, your moral character is a gift. And this is just to make people think. It's to make people think about a lot of topics. There are some fun topics in this book, and there are some serious topics. But it's all nonfiction. You could call it philosophy. You could call it. You could call it. Uh, um, social sciences, you could call it uh, whatever you want, uh, but it's, uh, but it, the the essays are so vast, everything from why, how some states, uh, it's illegal to use your flashers in the rain, and it could actually be dangerous to, mm. as you said, light in the grill, to Frank Sinatra, to foreign policy. So there's there's no stories in there, as in a fiction story, but uh, but there is a lot in there that I Hope is entertaining. And some may call it the musings of a deranged author, but it's not really that, is it? <laughs> well, no, it's not. But, but one, but one um, I did see one press release. They call it the musings of a special agent, but uh, deranged author, no, because... Um, well, I guess now I, I would be author, but I'm not deranged. So, um, but I do, again, but I do have I do have a lot of lot of opinions, a lot of strong opinions. I've lived I've lived around the world, and I've I've been blessed with a, with a great career. Now with now seeing things with with my children and 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 doing uh, you know things with them. So yeah, I, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of topics in there, and and again, not all of them are serious. Great. Well, I I appreciate the fact that you're able to share your story and share your concepts your ideas in a fun and easy to read way 212 pages and the title of this your first publication to hit the streets a jumble of thoughts my author james sitton james this is a great read my authors uh, my authors my uh, uh listeners will want to get a copy of it how do they find it um you can find it at barnes and noble uh you can find it also on amazon.com barnesandnoble.com and uh, all of your other, any of your major merchant, merchants, if they don't have it, they can order it. Fabulous. And did you enjoy the process enough that perhaps there'll be a sequel? I did, and thank you for asking. There is going to be a sequel. It is already um, just about finished, and it's called A Jumble of Thoughts 2, T-O-O. So it's going to be continuing along the same thing. Another collection of essays, uh, you know, topical things that are going on, and just continuing, continuing where this one left off. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Uh, the book title again, A Jumble of Thoughts. My author, James Sitton, 
S-I-T-T-O-N. If you're doing a search online, you'll find this and his subsequent book. Thank you for joining me today and uh, look forward to visiting with you in the future. Thank you very much, and I look forward to it as well. James, delighted to visit with you. You have a good day. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. In the 1950s, kids were about baseball, the Lone Ranger, and apple pie. In the 60s, it was war, finding your freedom in the monkeys. The 1970s brought disco, the Brady Bunch, and self-empowerment. When the 80s arrived, the youth of the world celebrated individuality in a rocking beat. The 90s whizzed by with lots of grunge and many shades of gray. Now, the turn of the century has come and gone, and today's youth has something to say. Young Mind Society is the voice of a new generation. Tune in on AstronetRadio.com Fridays at 6 p.m. Central to hear DJ Y, Carl Papa, Queen Meek, and Princess Jazz lay down the humor, ideas, and thoughts of the now. Remember, Young Mind Society, Fridays at 6 p.m. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled American Blues, Jazz, and Soul Food. The second edition, and joining me from Virginia in the United States, is the author, Ron Rudison. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you, Jay, and uh, thank you for having me on. My pleasure. You have uh, a kind of a diverse background. You were born in New Orleans, which is certainly a uh, a center for music and soul food. Uh, you moved to Los Angeles. Now you're in Virginia. Share with my listeners a little about your book. How did it get written? What was the uh, the motivation behind sharing your story? Well, uh, when I joined, I joined the Navy uh, in 1976, and in traveling around the country. Uh, I was kind of uh, surprised that uh, when you would go to a town or a city and ask the local residents for recommendations for soul food and, and blues clubs and so forth, very hard to come by. Uh, if you go to a hotel, of course, you couldn't really get anything from the maitre d'. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was in the early 90s, so I was stationed in Key West at the time. And so uh, one weekend I drove to Miami, and looking for the same information, couldn't find it. And when I got back to uh, Key West, I put pen to paper and started writing. Well, share with share with us a little of the uh, the design of your book. I mean, the the contents. Is it just about the history of blues, jazz, and soul food, or is there actually a, a diverse uh, attention to all of those subject matters? Well, it's it's a number of things. I think first of all, it's a it's a travel guide or a companion that you can used to go to various cities like Atlanta or New Orleans and find good recommendations for uh, blues, jazz, and soul food. Mm. Also, uh, I write about the context in which soul food uh, venues and blues and jazz venues emerged, and so uh, there's a very much a historical tack. And so I put it in the context of American history. Well, soul food and jazz, are it's a unique uh, American art form. Uh, it, it really is not found elsewhere in the world except it was exported from the United States. Uh, is that a correct uh, assessment? Well, that's, that's, a, that's totally correct. Uh, and that's where the history portion comes in. Um, and by that I mean if you go back to the 1830s, early 1800s in a city like New Orleans, 
There was a place called Congo Square, and it was, the unique aspect of Congo Square was that was the only place that slaves in America could congregate freely on Sunday, play instruments, play drums. Of course, drums were forbidden on plantations, but they were allowed. They were allowed to uh, intermingle with different tribes uh, and 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 play and sing and eat. And I think that's one of the things that explains the vibrancy of the music and the food in New Orleans. And of course, a lot of the musicians from New Orleans back in the late 1800s, they migrated up and down the Mississippi River, went to Chicago, went to Memphis, places like that. And there is some tie to the uh, gospel uh, field as well. Oh, absolutely. The, uh, <clears throat> a lot of uh, gospel musicians... Uh, actually, if I, I'll backtrack a little bit. A lot of blues musicians, R&B musicians, had their roots in gospel. I think probably the, the one exception was uh, uh, Mahalia Jackson. There was a big effort to get her to, to go to what they called uh, secular music, but uh, she passed on it, and of course she's one of the greatest gospel singers in the history of the world. Uh, she's still an influence, I think, on many uh, many performers today. Uh, her music is still vibrant, and uh, to see her perform on some of the video clips that are still existing, uh, uh, pretty inspirational to watch that lady perform and also uh, give her soul in her music. Well, I totally agree. You have uh, over 400, well, 270 pages, not 400, 270 pages that you have uh, penned. Uh, I would think it would have taken a long time to get the research done on this. How did you go about finding these venues in different towns and cities across America? <laughs> well, you know, I actually started, uh, you know, researching this book in about 1992. And I would go to a city, and I would, uh, first I would begin by getting recommendations uh, for example, then go out to Memphis. Um, it was easy to find Bill Street, but then once you got to Bill Street, uh, one of the first places I visited was B.B. King's Blues Club. And I sat down with uh, some of the principals, and they were very, very helpful in telling me, uh, you know, suggesting places that I, that I should go. Uh, for example, they said they asked me if I, if I was going to go to Green's Lounge, and I said, well, I haven't heard of Green's Lounge. Uh, and they said, well, it's, it's back in the woods. <laughs> I'm going to give you directions there, and uh, you're going to be a little put off because you're going to go through some, go through the woods. There's not going to be any lights, hmm. but when you get there, you're going to find an incredible juke joint, and uh, and that's kind of a kind of the way that I went about finding uh, different places. So you're talking about places that most individuals couldn't find in the in the general sense of uh, searching. Oh, absolutely not. And uh, one of the tragedies of Green's Lounge, it, it was. Probably one of the most historic, uh, what we call juke joints mm -hmm. in the South. Right. And, uh, and they, they, the building uh, burned down by uh, in a fire uh, maybe 10 years ago. Ah. Uh, so there's a section of my book called Hall of Memories. And uh, the story of Green's Lounge is what inspired me to put uh, places that have gone away but that, that uh, were well remembered within the community. It's kind of a platform for them to continue to, to survive. You mentioned also that you attended a show by Freddie Cole, and I was not familiar with him. Share some of the uh, insight that you have from the performers that you have been uh, privileged to, to view in concert. Well, I'll start with Freddie Cole. I uh, saw him in concert at the Blues Alley in Washington, D.C., and I had a the pleasure of sitting down uh, and talking to him uh, in between shows. It turns out he lives in Atlanta, so 
we have that in common, and of course, being Nat King Cole's brother, uh, he was a font of information about the family. Uh, when I was uh, another example is when I was in um, Memphis and sitting down at Cozy Corner uh, Barbecue, I was talking to one of the founder. He's no longer with us, but Mr. Robinson. Mm. Uh, he and I were sitting down at the booth, and then along came one of the surviving members of the Barquets. Wow. And, of course, that was an incredible, incredible experience. Uh, I was lucky to have several like that. Which of the stories that you've included in your book do you think is uh, maybe the one at the top of your list, one that excited you the most? Oh, man. <laughs> Thank you for asking. The uh, I guess I always go back to, and I'm going back to Memphis again, uh, the story of Robert Church Sr. Uh, he was a former, uh, he was uh, the son of a, a plantation owner and a slave. And this plantation owner had a, a riverboat. And so he took Robert on this riverboat, and Robert learned kind of the trade in terms of uh, food craft and, and and the like. Uh, he, he uh, I, I think the father and the boat were confiscated, so he ended up in Memphis in the late 1800s. Uh, hmm. But he had such a, an, an acumen as an entrepreneur that he became very, very wealthy. And he founded uh, something called the Church Park Auditorium right. uh, in the early 1900s. And that was, to me, the original Chitlin' Circuit venue. And it was probably one of the most unique uh, facilities in the country. Seated about 2,000. Uh, his uh, W.C. Candy was his was his house band leader. Really? Wow. And he went on, uh, to make a long story short, Robert Church had a son. Robert Church Jr. Uh, became very uh, prominent in the civil rights movement back in the 30s. And uh, also his granddaughter, Roberta Church, was a prominent figure in women's suffrage. Uh, back in the 40s and 50s. Phenomenal. You, were you able to include any photos in your book? I, Since I don't have the privilege of actually seeing it, uh, were those included, or were you unable to uh, to find documentation that could support some of your stories? Well, I took photos of all, all of my venues as far as documentation of, uh, like, Church Park Auditorium. Uh, I don't have it in my book because I, didn't, I don't have permission to use the photo. Hmm. But uh, if you, if your listeners would Google Church Park Auditorium, they'll find some very uh, some photos and some very interesting information. Early family memories. Were there any influences there that directed you toward this 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 venue and this research? Uh-huh. Well, the uh, my father was a jazz pianist in New Orleans, and also a school teacher. Hmm. Uh, even my mother never married. I didn't really get a chance to know him much, only through stories. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away when I was a senior in high school. But uh, the music is, is in me. I've always gravitated towards music. Uh, my son is a jazz pianist. I think my father's gene skipped me and went to him. Uh, he's a very, very good pianist. He's uh, 18 years old. The, uh, and, I, of course, I grew up in a church, and I always sang in the choir. And I sang in high school, and uh, so I just have always been gravitated toward the music. As far as the food, uh, one of my earliest experiences in a soul food restaurant was when I was visiting my great aunt in New Orleans. I was five years old, 1955, mm. to date myself. And uh, she looked at me and she said, this young man needs uh, some meat on his bones, so she gave him a dollar. And she said, son, 
go across the street to Dookie's and grab some food. Uh-huh. So I raced across the street to, to Dookie Chase. That's in the, across the street from the Lafitte, the former Lafitte Projects in the Treme District. So anyway, I walk up to the counter, and this beautiful lady says, Son, oh, I actually said, Baby, what do you want? And I said, I don't know. She said, Why don't you try a po- oyster po' boy? Mm-hmm. So I, I grabbed it, and I fell in love. Wow. Not only with the po' boy, but with uh, Leah Chase. And that was the <laughs> lady who served me. Uh, Mama Chase is now in her, uh, I would say, maybe late, early 80s. And she's considered the... Uh, the queen of Creole restaurants. And she was, uh, she and my father, I guess, would say, were inspirations for me writing the book about the, the food and the music. Phenomenal. When you describe the food in the, in the book, did you also maybe share a recipe or two, or is that something that's maybe a little more ambitious than, uh, than what I would imagine? Uh, no, I didn't, because I, I didn't really want to be intrusive uh, on, the, on the entrepreneurs. Uh, a lot of them have written their own cookbooks. Uh, for example, uh, Leah Chase uh, has several books. So uh, that's just kind of outside of my, my expertise. Ron, did you have any unique challenges in writing this? It's an inspirational work, especially if you love music, as I do. Well, uh, the biggest challenge was, uh, it was not so much when I was in the Navy, because I had a constant source of income. And I'm retired Navy now, but that income is spread you know, among the wife and kids. Right. So... Uh, it was a challenge being a real estate agent, coming up with the funds to be able to travel to these different cities and, you know, spend a week and, and visit all of the venues. Uh, and, and and it took time to make that happen. I, I love the premise of the book and I also the title, American Blues, Jazz and Soul Food. And it's the second edition, so this is an update. My author has been Ron Rudison. Sir, there are going to be many listeners who want to get a copy of this. How do they do so? Uh, well, I, you can go to the the Author House website to get one, uh, to buy a book. And, uh, and within the next week or so, I'm going to be uh, updating my website, which is um, bluesjazzandsoulfood.com, so that you can purchase the book uh, on my site as well. Anything else uh, in the future you're working on? I uh, can't share it now because it's not copyrighted. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I enjoyed visiting with you, and I'm sure they can also get this on Amazon and the other online retailers. Is it available in softback? or paper? It is available in paperback, right? It's available in paperback, hardback, and also as an e-book. Fantastic. And uh, this could be a great travel guide and also a wonderful look back at some of the history of uh, blues, jazz, and soul food. So thank you for sharing your story. Oh, Jay, I really appreciate the opportunity to do so, and thank you for having me. Honored to visit with you, sir. For Author House, this is Jay Douglas Barker.